Dis. Nie. Ato. Sieben. Seis. Pinch. Nange. Three. Dwa. One. Hi, and welcome to a rocky episode of ESA Explores in honor of Asteroid Day. I'm Rosa Jesse, and a couple of months ago, I spoke to an astronomer in ESA's Near Earth Object Coordination Center, whose job it is to defend our planet from asteroid impacts, Marco Michele. So stay tuned to hear the surprisingly positive story of a lost asteroid, how Gaia, ESA's space observatory, has revolutionized the work of asteroid detectors. We also get the lowdown on the giant and infamous asteroid Apophis, and Marco describes his preferred method planetary protection. First of all, I asked him to explain a little bit about himself and his unusual role. My name is Marco Micheli and uh, I'm an astronomer and uh, I'm the main observer at ESA's Near Earth Object Coordination Center, which is located in Esri in the ESA Center in Italy, in Frascati, near Rome. And my main job is to actually observe dangerous asteroids for ESA and get the data we need to predict possible future impacts of them with the Earth. There can't be many people with that job description. Have you always been interested in asteroids? What got you into this? That's actually very interesting. I, yes, and uh, since I was a kid, basically. If you had asked me what do you, you want to do when I was 14 or 15 years old, I would have said observing asteroids. <laughs> I was very, very into this since very young age. I started as an amateur astronomer. A lot of people in my field actually start as amateurs in one of the many amateur astronomers uh, communities that exist all over the world. And I was fortunate to grow up in, in Brescia, in Northern Italy, where there is this group called the Stoffi di Bresciani, who has been doing amateur level astronomy. And I went there, visited their activities. And so one guy was actually doing observations on asteroids. And that was, that was it. I just, at the time when I saw that, I said, this is going to be my, my job. I want to do this for my life. And were you interested because of, you know, the dinosaurs were wiped out by asteroids and they're dangerous, or was it more scientific? It was, I think it was mostly a scientific idea because, uh, you know, I've always liked astronomy and I always wanted to do something in astronomy. But the thing that really hooked me into the asteroid part of it is that it's one of the few things in astronomy where it's actually very, very precise. Mm. Most astronomy is just uh, general physics applied to systems that you don't really have a lot of control on. Asteroids are, they behave very rationally, very predictably, and we can do very precise observations and do the maths on them to predict things very accurately. And that's the thing that fascinated me. So a lot of your work, or all of your work, is to do with near-Earth asteroids. Can you explain what they are? Yes, uh, well, near-Earth asteroids are, well, to say it in simple terms, are the asteroids that can come near the Earth, which is trivial. Actually, they're not defined like that. They are formally defined as the asteroid that can come to within a certain distance of the Sun, within 1.3 astronomical units, which is the distance of the Earth to the Sun. So any asteroid that can come 1.3 times as close to the Sun as the Earth is coming is defined as a near-Earth asteroid. And uh, that threshold has been chosen because it's kind of close enough to get in the neighborhood of the Earth and uh, possibly sooner or later come to cross the orbit of the Earth and uh, possibly collide with us. And how many of them are there and how many of them do we know about? Okay, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tricky question. <laughs> how many do we know about it? It's pretty easy. It's a bit more than 20,000 as of today. And they're being discovered every day, so the number is growing. How many there are, it depends a little bit on the size 
that you consider threatening enough. If you only care about very, very, very large ones, like the ones that cause the extinction of the dinosaurs, like the ones that can cause a calamity on planetary scale, they are typically those that are bigger than about a kilometer in diameter. And those are not that many. They're less than a thousand, we think of. And we know basically almost all of them. If, on the other hand, you care about smaller ones, 100 meters or maybe 10 meters, then there are many, many more of them. For example, we think there are about a million asteroids, near-Earth asteroids that are bigger than 10 meters. And we only know basically less than 1% of those, of the really small ones. So in that size range, that's asteroids of a similar size to the Chelyabinsk meteor. Uh, and that struck Earth's atmosphere over Russia in 2013. Yes, the Chelyabinsk event was about 18, 20 meters. So yeah, of those, there are hundreds of thousands out there. And they are important to know about because even though they maybe don't even touch the ground, they can explode in the atmosphere, they still do damage. Quite a few people were injured, weren't they, with the Chelyabinsk impact? Yeah, exactly. Chelyabinsk is the direct proof of how even a reasonable small asteroid, 18, 20 meters, can cause significant damage to people and to infrastructures when it falls over the city. And as you said, it doesn't even need to touch the ground even if they explode in the atmosphere, as Chiliadins did, the explosion, the air blast, basically, can significantly affect the significant area of the Earth just under the explosion point. Mm -hmm. So how do you go about finding them? How do we find asteroids? And how do we then know if they are or are not going to hit us? Okay, finding them, it's uh, typically the job of dedicated telescopes. They're called survey telescopes. Uh, at the moment, most of them are in the United States, but ESA is building its own. It's called the Fly-Eye Telescope, and it's going to be operational hopefully pretty soon in southern Italy, in Sicily. And these telescopes are dedicated to finding new asteroids. Basically, they scan the sky every night, they take pictures of the sky, the night sky, and they see if there is something new that moves in the images that is not known and that can be close enough to be an Earth asteroid. But that's it. That's all they do. They just... Uh, discover them and tell astronomers, look, there is something new right there. And then they don't do anything more on them. They don't even look again the night after or the weeks after. And that's the job of observers like me, like what we do in ESA, is what we call follow-up. Basically, it's taking all the newly discovered asteroids, decide the ones that are more threatening, and then organize additional observations with other telescopes, typically with more powerful telescopes that we have access to, to keep track of them, to keep an eye on them, to keep monitoring their motion, getting more data on how they move and where they go, and use this information, this extended information on them, to predict the orbit, the trajectory of the asteroid much better, and predict if they can come close to the Earth in the future. So this follow-up is extremely important and is essential to make sure that, the aster that we know where the asteroids are going and that we know that they're not going to get lost anytime soon. And that's what we focus right now mostly in, in ESA, in, in our group. Mm -hmm. Because I guess when you first see an asteroid, it might be moving even away from Earth, but that doesn't mean, you know, that it's not coming back later. They're kind of like boomerangs. They'll always come back. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They, they always come back. And so even if an asteroid is moving away from you and uh, it's receding, it's getting fainter and fainter, it's still totally worth observing it with bigger and bigger telescopes, the farther it, away it gets, because that's the only chance you have to track its trajectory and to predict 
its orbit well enough to know when it's coming back next time and then if it may hit the next time it comes around. Mm -hmm. So what does a normal day look like at work for you if you can have normal days? Well, no, the normal ones basically go to the office in, in Esrin, in Foscati. And uh, typically, I either get images from telescopes that I've uh, programmed or asked for observations the night before, or I prepare observations and targets for our telescopes and our collaborators to observe during the next nights. So it's a lot of asking for data, programming telescopes, and then retrieving the data, analyzing them, spotting the asteroids, and measuring the position of the asteroid in the image to have the information that we need to compute the trajectory. Occasionally, after every uh, a few nights every month, I actually do nighttime observing when I'm awake at night, controlling a telescope and getting real-time data with the telescope. It's actually not as most people imagine. I'm not at the telescope physically. I'm not looking into a telescope on a mountaintop. I'm actually in my, at my home, in, in, my, in, my, in my room, and I'm just uh, controlling the telescope via computer. I'm sending requests for observations, and I'm downloading data on my computer. So it's not as uh, poetic and romantic as it may seem. It's not mountaintop observing anymore. Most telescopes are currently operated remotely. They don't need the astronomer to be physically at the telescope to do their observations. It takes away a little bit of the fascinating astronomer life, but... But it's, that sounds comfortable. You can have your cat around, sit in your pyjamas and save the planet at the same time. Exactly. <laughs> it's good. I enjoy it. <laughs> um, you do a lot of work with the risk list. Can you explain a bit about what that is? Because that's also publicly available as well. So it might be good for people to know what it is and how they can read it and what it's used for. Yeah, the risk list is extremely useful. It's basically it's the final goal of our work and also the input for my observing, basically. It's public, it's on our website, and uh, it's a list that it's updated every day that contains the information on all the asteroids for which we cannot exclude a possible impact with the Earth in the next century. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that we know that it's going to impact. Actually, for none of them, we know for sure that they're going to impact. But it's just those that with the currently available data, we cannot exclude with a some probability that they may hit the Earth in the future. And uh, the list contains uh, the name of the asteroid, the size of the asteroid, the date of the future possible future impact, and uh, an estimate of how dangerous it would be if it were actually to hit. It's updated every day, and every time I produce new data, I get new measurements of, of an asteroid. This data is processed by our systems, by my, by my colleagues that are mathematicians and take care of all the orbital dynamics part. And they produce this refreshed assessment of the threat of any asteroid that is observed. And everything is public right there for everybody to see every day. So can you tell us a bit about what a star catalogue is? Because it's counterintuitive, but actually by observing stars, we can find out more about asteroids. Yeah, that's really fascinating. You know, uh, star catalogs are basically what the name says. They are catalogs of stars in the sky. And they are basically, in their most simple idea, a very, very simple product. It's basically a list of billions of stars with their coordinates in the sky of where they are located. So basically, the, the two coordinates to tell us, okay, there is a star that is right there. Then there is some extra information, such as you know, the brightness of the star or how the star moves. But basically, it's just that. It's a list of stars in the sky. 
And that may seem very disconnected from asteroids. And you may think, mm. you know, why do we really care about catalogs of stuff? And uh, that's the surprising uh, twist to the story is that we do care about them a lot because when we observe an asteroid in the sky, when we point a telescope and take an image of the sky with an asteroid in it, we need to know exactly where the asteroid is and the asteroid moves. So if we want to measure the exact position of the asteroid at that particular instant of time, we need to have a reference. And the way to do that is to compare the position of the asteroid in the image with the position of stars in the same image. Every image has a lot of stars that are just there in the sky. The asteroid is moving in front of them. And by having a very accurate catalog of the stars, by knowing extremely well where the stars are, we can determine the position of the asteroid in a comparably good way. And uh, therefore, we know exactly where our asteroid was because the star positions are known very well. Recently, a new star catalogue, or a few years ago, a new star catalogue was published. And that was from Gaia, which is ESA's it's a space observatory that's tracking and finding new stars all around the galaxy. Um, what difference has Gaia made in Gaia's star catalogue to your work and, and to asteroids? Well, a lot, really a lot. And uh, it's... Uh... It's extremely important for us because Gaia is so much better than any other star catalog before that has suddenly brought us into a new era of observing, measuring positions of asteroids. Until the time before Gaia, all the star catalogs we were using were based on observations from the ground, telescopes, ground-based telescopes, observing the sky and mapping the, the stars. And unfortunately, they were, they were good, but they were not great. The positions of the stars that they listed were not extremely accurate. And this was actually important for us because it was the limiting factor in our ability to measure the position of asteroids. Telescopes were so good and the images of the asteroids were so nice that the asteroid itself was not the limiting source of our precision on how well we could measure the asteroid. It was the stars. It was the fact that the positions of the stars in the image were not known well enough from the previous catalogs to create this reference map and know where the asteroid was. So that was mm -hmm. by far the limiting factor in all we were doing until Gaia came out. And then all of a sudden, from one day to the next, this catalog, this catalog comes out in 2016. And uh, now we have a star catalog that is so much better than anything before. And basically all these issues are gone in a minute. They are just a thing of the past. And now we know where the stars are. Now we can measure exactly the positions of our asteroids. And now we don't have to worry about these biases, this offsets, this issue with the references. And it's, it made a lot, a lot of difference. And we can really see that every day today. Everybody now is switching to Gaia. There is basically nothing out there that is even remotely close to the quality of data that the Gaia Star Catalog is producing and is giving us. It's very rare to have such a dramatic change in something in science. Typically, science goes on by small steps toward improvement. Gaia is such a huge leap forward in one specific thing that is, in my opinion, is really amazing and really surprising. Sounds revolutionary. And was this expected when, when the catalog was released? Did people know that this was going to be the effect it had? Or were you suddenly like, oh, yeah. wow, loads of asteroids? 
<laughs> no, no, we knew, we knew we were expecting it. And uh, the, the people behind the project told us the kind of precision they were expecting. And it was so great that we were all totally expecting it. Actually, I was there the day Gaia was published. I was there like watching the press conference and refreshing <laughs> the ESA website, hoping to download <laughs> the new version of the catalog as soon as it became available. And within like half an hour, I was using it and I was almost crying in joy. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So now that we have the new Gaia catalogue and it's helping understand more about asteroids, what difference has it made? Has it changed our understanding of the risk that asteroids pose? Are we safer now that Gaia uh, has released this star catalogue? In a certain sense, we are. We are because uh, every time we measure the position of an asteroid, now our measurement is much more accurate. So when we compute the orbit of an asteroid that is based on measurements referred to Gaia, we can predict the orbit much better and we can uh, predict the future possible close approaches of the asteroid to the Earth and possible impacts much better. So indirectly, through this chain of uh, improvements, it actually has made a difference and it allows us to predict things much better. And it's actually interesting because even the, all the data that was taken before Gaia existed referred refer to other catalogs. Now we can use Gaia as the reference point and we can estimate how the other catalogs, how bad they were, and we can directly correct all data in reference to Gaia by knowing how off the old data were. And uh, by putting that together, we are not just improving the new after Gaia data, but we are also improving the before Gaia data. Interesting. So Gaia is not only improving our future understanding and measurements and observations of asteroids, but it's also reaching into the past and updating and fixing previous measurements of asteroids and understandings of their movements. That must be pretty useful. Yeah, exactly. Fixing data that we took long ago when we didn't have anything as good as Gaia, but it can be brought back to the more or less quality of Gaia, which is actually very important for asteroids because in, uh, there are cases of asteroids that were only seen a decade ago before Gaia, and then maybe they're coming back in the, in the future. So we do want to be able to deal with the old data also. Well, I remember that a few months ago, there was the case of an asteroid that had been lost it was observed a few times maybe and, and people didn't understand the orbit that well and then they completely lost it and it was your team that figured out how to find out if it would hit or not. Do you think you could explain a bit about how it's possible to even lose an asteroid and maybe talk a little bit about this particular case where you discovered it wasn't going to hit by not observing it? Yeah, <laughs> that was an interesting story. Uh, it's well, Let's start with the losing asteroids part. That is unfortunately pretty common. What does it mean? It means that, as I told you at the beginning, the first step is of discovering an asteroid is just one of these survey telescopes that tell the world, look, there is something new right there in that part of the sky. And then other astronomers like me use other telescopes to add additional observations, additional measurements of the trajectory of the asteroid for as long as the asteroid is observable. And sometimes that's not a lot, because especially if the asteroid is small and it's moving away from us, you may not have a lot of time to get data on it. Maybe within a few weeks or a month, the asteroid will go far enough from the Earth, will recede far enough from the Earth, that uh, we will not be able to see it anymore, not even with the biggest and most powerful telescopes we have. And uh, when that happened, basically, you're stuck with the data you got from the time of discovery to the time it became too faint to see. 
Sometimes that is not enough to predict where the asteroid will be the next time it comes around and comes close to the Earth. And when that happens is when we say that the asteroid is lost. In most cases, it's unavoidable. It's a situation where there is no telescope on Earth that can see the asteroid for long enough to get a good enough orbit and predict the next time times it comes around. Mm -hmm. And that's why you end up with a situation like the one you were discussing, when an asteroid has been seen in the past and has then gone far away from the Earth, so far that no telescopes was capable of seeing it again until maybe now when it comes back. And uh, now that it comes back, we don't know what it is, but maybe it could be that there is a possibility that among the many possible trajectories that it can have today, one of them is trajectory that has a possibility of collision with the Earth. And when that happens, in some sense, that may seem like a problem because we don't know what it is, but we know it can come and hit us. The thing we did a few months ago was actually a trick to sort of solve this issue. If the asteroid is lost, you don't know where to point a telescope because you don't know what it is. So you will not be able to see the asteroid again and improve the trajectory. However, of the many possible trajectories that the asteroid can have, typically there's only very few that uh, correspond to the asteroid coming and hitting us. What you can do is instead of observing the whole sky and looking for your asteroid that you don't know what it is, you just focus on the little tiny part of the sky where the asteroid would be if it were in that particular trajectory that corresponds to a collision course. So you just look there, you point at that spot of the sky, and you take an image with a very powerful telescope, and you hope you don't see anything. If the asteroid is not there, you still don't know what it is, but you know it's not in that exact trajectory that would correspond to an impact with the Earth. So you can exclude the impact even without knowing where the asteroid is. And that's what we did a few months ago in collaboration with ESO, with the European Southern Observatory, and with the BLT, the Very Large Telescope, which is a very powerful telescope in uh, South America, in Chile. And we were able to do that observation. We were able to exclude that that particular asteroid was in a collision course with the Earth. That's amazing. So you must have been super relieved to not see an asteroid in the observations. Yeah, exactly. That was the thing. And you have to be absolutely sure. So you have to be very, very careful on how you do the observation because you are basically claiming a non-impact on the basis of not seeing something. So you have to be absolutely sure you're looking at the right spot and doing it right. It's, very, it's much easier if you see something because then you see it. It's there. If you don't see something, these negative observations are a bit more difficult to, to deal with. But it was successful and the asteroid actually didn't hit us. So <laughs> we know it worked. And are there any other examples, any specific cases that you can tell us about that Gaia specifically has helped with? Oh, there were a few. There were a few. There was actually one that was particularly exciting. It was in 2017. So it was just a year after Gaia came out. And there was a big international collaboration uh, led by, by NASA to observe, to, to recover, let's say, to find again an asteroid that was coming back and was going to come very close to the Earth. And uh, we organized some observations again with this telescope in Chile, with a very large telescope. And uh, we were able to see the asteroid. It was there, little dot in our images. But uh, it was, there was a problem there because there were very few stars in the image. So this thing of comparing... Uh, measuring the position of the asteroid by comparing it 
to the stars in the image was a bit difficult. So I had a situation there. It was still the time of the very first release of Gaia that didn't have a lot of stars yet. So I was in the situation of having four stars of the Gaia catalog in my image or 17 stars of the best previous catalog that existed. So do I use four very good stars or do I use 17 really poor stars for my measurement of my position? And uh, in the end, uh, I tried both. I went with Gaia. And uh, after a few months, when more data was taken on the asteroid and there was a very, very, we knew the position of the asteroid very, very well, we could confirm, compare the things and we could verify that the position measured with even just four Gaia stars was way, way better than the position we measured with uh, 17 of the not so good stars from the previous catalog. So that I think is the most direct measurement of how amazing Gaia is. Even with very few stars, they're so good that you know exactly what you're looking at. That is amazing. And if, if Gaia can do that with four stars and it's charting a billion stars, that's just a huge amount of information. That's a huge amount of information, exactly. Exactly. And so basically now we have a Gaia star everywhere we look in the sky. So we know exactly what we're looking at. You said before that that we know of 20,000 roughly near-Earth asteroids at the moment, although there are more of them out there. Um, Is there one that is in the risk list at the moment that you're currently worried about? At what point do you start to get nervous? What probability of impact do you really think? Uh Uh, Okay, well, the probability that we start getting worried about is again related with the the size of the asteroid. Like if we were to find an asteroid, a kilometer size asteroid that has, I don't know, even one in a hundred thousand chance of impacting the Earth, we would probably be a bit worried because that's a it's a small probability, but it's an event that has a probability, the possibility of being really devastating for the planet. On the other hand, we had some cases in the past decade or so of asteroids of uh, a few meters, three four meters that we computed 100% probability of impact. And uh, an asteroid of two or three meters will not do any damage to to the ground. So actually these are very exciting times because we know it's coming for sure. And we can test all our machinery we use to predict things on something that doesn't cause any threat to people or or things on the ground. So in that case, we are not worried at all, even if the probability is 100%, we're just a bit excited. So yeah, it depends a lot of the, on the size. It's a, it's a balance between size, probability, and also how far in the future the impact is. So if it's 100 years away, you think, ah, I'll leave that to the grandkids. No, not really. We may leave to the grandkids the, the part of mitigating the threat, but we have to work now on observing it because we don't want our grandkids to end up in the situation that we are with some lost asteroids. So we want to observe them now to get the best possible data on them now that we know where they are, to make sure that they don't get lost and they, that our kids and our grandkids can keep observing them and then decide if they want to do something in the future or not. And yeah, are there any on the list at the moment that you're worried about? At the moment, nothing very, very, very scary. Actually, nothing scary at all. It's basically a routine. There, are, there is an object that was discovered a few weeks ago that is currently at the top of our list. We are observing it routinely. It's going to be tracked for the next uh, few months easily. And so we expect it to go away in the next few weeks. There is nothing that really worries us, nothing that would warrant any kind of mitigation effort at the moment. But again, we don't know all of them. We still 
don't know a lot of them actually. So what you see in the list is just the ones we know. So we still need to discover any. Fortunately, the the times where we have something that really scares us are not that common. But it does happen. It has happened. When's the last time that there was an asteroid that you were quite worried about? The one that really worried us a lot, the whole community, was in 2004. The, it was the f- nowadays famous Apophis. It's probably the most famous asteroid out there. And uh, that asteroid for a few okay. days had a 1 in 36 probability, or 3% probability of impacting. And at the time, it was 25 years in the future. So it was 2029, yeah. 2004. And Apophis was big. It's a 350-meter asteroid. So it's something that could cause a really major devastation at a the whole one whole country or something like that. So we had a 3% chance that within 25 years, an area corresponding more or less to the size of a country could be swept away from the earth. So that was scary. That was really scary. But things went well. And again, as, as I was mentioning before, astronomers observed it. We got more data. We recomputed the trajectory. And within a few days, uh, I think about a week, we were able to exclude the possibility of an impact of Apophis in 2029. It's one of those asteroids that people keep talking about. I keep seeing newspaper headlines about it and people online sometimes still seem worried about it. Yeah, uh, most of them is actually not true. We still have a... The thing is that every time one of these asteroids scares us for a while, after a while we know it's not going to hit in that particular year, but we still know that it's going to come very close to the Earth. Apophis, for example, we know it's not going to hit the Earth in 2029, but we also know that we'll come very, very close to the Earth in 2029. Actually, people out there want to mark their calendar. On the 13th of April, 2029, Apophis will come so close to the Earth that it will be visible with your naked eye. You can just go out of your house, look up, and you will see Apophis with your naked eye flying over us. The not-so-good part of that is that every time an asteroid comes so close to the Earth, the Earth's gravity changes its orbit. So it gets harder to predict where it goes afterwards. So for a while, when you exclude an impact in a possible day, a possible year, you may have possibility of impacts for future years. And that has been going on with Apophis for a long time. Right now, we have a possibility of an impact about 50 years from now, I think. But we are down to, I think, two in a million chance, something like that. So it's basically down to a level that is not particularly relevant and we don't have to worry about Apophis anymore. Those odds sound pretty good. I'll take them. Let's say, as a thought experiment, that you discovered that Apophis was going to strike in 50 years. What would be your favourite method to protect the planet from it? Because people might not know that there's actually quite a lot of things that we can do to prevent an asteroid strike. True. Yeah, there's a lot of things we can do, and that's reassuring. There's been a lot of studies, a lot of work to devise different strategies that are technologically more or less, uh, some are easier, some are harder. But at the moment, I think the thing that will be tried first is what we call the kinetic impactor, because it's technologically easy. We have all the technology to do it. And it's basically a very, very, very simple idea is you take a rocket, you put something very heavy on top of it, you launch the rocket and you throw this thing at your asteroid and you smash it into the asteroid. And uh, if you do it well enough and early enough, that kick from the impactor from the projectile hitting the asteroid will deflect the trajectory of the asteroid a little bit. And uh, that small deflection, if it's done early in time, will then allow the asteroid to miss the Earth. And that is technologically feasible. And it actually will be tested soon by a joint NASA-ESA mission 
where they will go to an asteroid and actually attempt a uh, deflection of one of, of a body there to make sure that we exactly know how to do it and that we can exactly basically gauge the, the effectiveness of this uh, hit and then be prepared for a future possible real one that's coming towards us. So that's NASA's DART mission and ESA's HERA mission, both super exciting and kind of unbelievable. Some people have asked, how do you know you're not going to hit it and suddenly make it, you know, a dangerous asteroid? It wasn't previously, but what if you get it wrong and you kick it towards Earth? Here I would say that if we had the capability to change the orbit of an asteroid that much to make that asteroid into a collision course for the Earth, then we will not have a problem about deflecting asteroids at all because we could be able to throw them anywhere we want, basically. But <laughs> fortunately and unfortunately, we're not that good at deflecting asteroids. So the deflections we can do are very, very small. So you think about asteroids every day and the chance of asteroids impacting Earth and the potential damage that a huge asteroid could do to our planet. Do you sleep well? Yeah, I do. The thing I like of it is that it's one of the few fields and a few studies of threats to our planet where we have the ability to predict them and we have to ability, the, the ability of doing something in case they come. If you think of other threats like earthquakes or volcanoes, they're much, much harder to predict. And there's really not a lot you can do if one happens. In this particular case, thanks to the fact that, you know, it's thanks in space, celestial mechanics is very accurate science. We can actually study them, predict them, and uh, as I just said, do something if they come. So it's good to be there. It's good to be studying these things because, because we can do something if we find them. Yeah, I think it's the only natural disaster we can do something about. It's pretty cool. I feel more reassured. Good. <laughs> so thank you to Marco McKelly and thank you for listening. If you're looking for more Rocky content, head to ESA's Space Safety website where you can catch our Asteroid Day program, available in six languages, as well as loads more information on the Fly-Eye telescopes, the HERA mission, and all of the work being done by the Near-Earth Object Coordination Centre, and that's at esa.int forward slash space safety. Ciao!